he has through his word, through his word. Hi, everyone. Uh, good to be back again. We're um, on, the, on the third part of our, our little series, Christianity's Big Five. And this week, we're thinking about um, the believer being eternally forever secure in the Spirit of God. So that's what we're thinking about. We've already looked at um, God being sovereign. We've looked at the whole aspect of our salvation. Now we're looking at the, the, the securing factor of the believer. So having been graciously saved from our, our sin by an amazing sovereign God who, who sacrificed his very own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, if you want, at Calvary over 2,000 years ago for all who would believe, that's you and I, um, with, with our being placed into that category of saved people by him, then we've been miraculously taken to this place of being indwelt by the third person of the, the Trinity, generally referred to as God the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is, is how we generally refer to him. And so the Holy Spirit, he enters the believer at, at the miraculous moment of your salvation and my salvation. We were immediately indwelt by, by God the Spirit. But before we enter into this incredible subject of our being indwelt by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the living God residing within us, let's uh, quickly clarify just exactly what salvation is. So we're clear on, on, on that. You might remember how Jesus responded to the question from the individual known as Nicodemus, who was an Old Testament scholar. And he came to Jesus and he asked, well, what must I do to be born again? Pretty incredible question. What must I do to be born again when a, a person is mature like me? Can he enter the, the womb a second time to be born is his, is his question. And with Jesus telling Nicodemus that you, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again, Jesus is saying to this, incredibly religious man that without the second birth experience every person remains spiritually dead Nicodemus unless you have this experience you remain spiritually dead and, and even though you know all of this material and stuff and so the apostle Paul he explained it to the Ephesian believers with with these words in Ephesians chapter 2 verses uh, verse 1 and then verse 5 he writes and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins God made you alive in salvation through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit who ministered to you graciously prior to your being saved. So verse 5 uh, is pretty clear. It reads like this. Even when we were dead in trespasses, even when we were living like that, God made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved, says Paul. So God the Spirit brought you to life from the place of your being spiritually dead by enabling you to recognize that you you need Jesus Christ to redeem you. He brings you to that place. So here's how Jesus then answered the inquiring Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and, and you hear it, the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, so regeneration or salvation is accomplished by God the Spirit performing. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Nicodemus, this is a work of God. Maybe like Nicodemus, we've been, we have these burning questions as to the, the Holy Spirit within us. So let's back up a little bit and, and begin to discover this uh, amazing person who helps make up what we call the Trinity, the Triune God, the Godhead, whatever we want to call it there. He helps make that up. Really important. So firstly, let's recognize that the Holy Spirit is a person. Really important. Um, 
Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung writes this. He says, the Holy Spirit is a person. He grieves, he intercedes, he testifies, he speaks, he creates, he has a mind, he can be blasphemed. So DeYoung's arguing that he's a spirit. He gives scripture references for some of those too. And it might help us to, to throw our minds back to what we call Jesus' farewell discourse in John chapter 14 through 16, where Jesus promises to send another helper, uh, who is in fact the Holy Spirit. So after his resurrection and his ascension to be with the Father in heaven, Jesus is then replaced in a ministry sense by the Holy Spirit. And this, this person, <clears throat> this helper, now lives, this person lives within every truly redeemed, truly saved person. So if you know Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, you've been forgiven by him today, then the Holy Spirit of God resides and lives in you. That's a pretty amazing thing, I think, anyway. Well, let's read what Jesus says about uh, the Holy Spirit and the believer in John 15, 26 through to uh, chapter 16, verse 15. Let me read it to you. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send you from the Father, uh, the Spirit of truth, that's what the Helper's called, who proceeds from the, the Father, he will testify of me, says Jesus. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning, speaking to his disciples here. Uh, chapter 16, verse 1, these things I've spoken to you that you should not be made uh, to stumble. They will, put, they, will, they will put you out of the synagogues. So you can expect that because the Holy Spirit's in you. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think it. he offers God, God a service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. So they're not believers in any way. They maybe think they are, they're religious, they look like that, sound like it, but they're not. But these things I've told you that when the time comes, you, rem you may remember that I told you of them. <clears throat> and these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's what he's going to do. Convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment, uh, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare to you all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that, that, that he, that's the spirit, will take of mine and declare it to you. So that's what's going to happen. That's what has happened, if you want. So now, did you notice in there what Jesus actually said about the Holy Spirit, about the Spirit? So our second point is this, the Holy Spirit convicts. That's what Jesus was pushing. For, for the believer, for you and I who are redeemed, and the, the, the Holy Spirit serves as a, a great comforter because our beloved Redeemer is physically absent from us. So the Spirit offers us this uh, assurance that we belong to Jesus, that we're, we're secure in Him, and that one day we'll, we'll leave this earth and we'll be forevermore eternally in His presence. But to the unsaved, however, the Spirit ministers via conviction of their sin as a really gracious act. I want you to listen again to pastor and author Kevin DeYoung. He gives a great illustration about this. He says, the Holy Spirit acts like a, a giant searchlight exposing the world's wickedness and calling people everywhere to repentance. 
It's as if the world is having a nice romantic candlelight dinner, thinking everything is all sirloin and roses, and then voila! The spirit flips on the lights, exposing cockroaches scurrying up the walls and garbage strewn about the floor. But we're not as good as we imagine, and the spirit can prove it to us. So that's what the spirit's going to do. It's going to expose our sin. So it is the spirit who convicts the unsaved of their sin, uh, of unbelief in, in Jesus and following him. And the world attempts to consider themselves as being, being good enough. And uh, so they, they attempt to qualify for heaven in some other way, but, but the spirit proves to them there is no other way by which they can qualify for heaven. So then they must, must make this choice of um, following Jesus or walking away from him as Lord and Savior. So even as Jesus preached to the, the masses who began to follow him when he was here on earth, many of them actually began to turn against him, claiming that his, his expectations, his supposed standards for his followers were just too hard. They were too uncomfortable. They were too much to expect of someone who, who's committing their life to following you. Well, Jesus asked them to, to drink of his blood and to eat of his flesh, meaning follow me, is what Jesus is saying, follow me to death because that's what's going to be required of you. Follow me that way. So in John chapter 6, verses uh, 60 to 66, here's what we read. Therefore, many of his disciples, now these are his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Uh, we, we don't want to really take this on board what they're saying. Verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you, says Jesus to these disciples, who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning that they were, that who they were that did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, in verse 65, therefore I've said to you that no one come to me unless it has been, it has been granted him by the Father. And from that time, this is tragic, verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. These disciples were committed, but, but they said, this is too hard. We're, we're out of this. This is not going to work. Now, did you notice in that text that it is the Spirit of God who gives life? So our third point is this, the Spirit initiates the conversion of a soul. Our text in John also highlighted verse 65, that no one, absolutely no one, says Scripture, can come to, um, come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior unless it has been granted to him by the Father. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to, to draw people to Christ for salvation, to draw Christ to, to, uh, to Christ for salvation, those who have been granted to him by God the Father. That's a harsh, a harsh statement, but that's scriptural. It's right there in front of us. Now, making the assumption that you're a person who has been convicted of your sin, and your need of Christ to forgive your sin by the Spirit of God, and subsequently then you're a person who has, be, who has been brought to salvation, to conversion through the ministry of the Spirit, then you're going to be interested in the next three facets of the Spirit's ministry in your life. <clears throat> I'm going to put these three facets together, uh, basically for simplicity. 
there baptism filling and sealing of the spirit the baptism of the spirit the filling of the spirit and the sealing of the spirit and we're really concluding with thought that uh, the fact that we're sealed by the spirit this is a, the secure factor of our walk with jesus so baptism of the spirit is something enjoyed by every person who is um, a faithful genuine truly redeemed follower of jesus this is a great unifying factor of our faith uh, Paul writes about the, uh, to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 13. Here's what Paul writes. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. He's referring there to the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. For as the body is one and as many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So that, that the Holy Spirit ministers to every believer. And this baptism of the Spirit is something equal and relational to, to every believer. So Paul continues his emphasis of this important thought in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So he simplifies this. The spirit ministers in this incredible way. So this baptism of the spirit is a, a once-for-all gift given to every true believer. There can be no adding to or detracting from this gift as the gift actually is a, a person, a being, God the Spirit. You can't have a little bit of them and then some more. You get the whole package. Now, nowhere in Scripture are believers called upon to be um, baptized with the Spirit, but we are called upon to be filled with more of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit happens at salvation, so then we're called upon to be filled with more of the Spirit. And Paul refers to this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. He says bluntly, and do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation or shameful living, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. That's what happens when we're filled with the Spirit. Uh, that's just a big problem in the church. We have so many people that are perhaps not filled with the Spirit or quenching the Spirit. And so there, there's no submission. There's no love and care for one another. These are things we have to work on, and the Spirit takes us to that incredible place. And this thought from Michael Horton may help clarify this understanding for us. Horton writes, it is not necessarily the case that we become more filled with the passing of years in Christ. Like natural breathing, there are times when we take unpleasant aromas more deeply. We long for the Spirit's indwelling presence to fill every nook and cranny of our thoughts, hopes, dreams, loves, and actions, to be led by Him rather than by our sinful passions. That's what it means to be filled 
with the Spirit of God. So for you and I as believers to be filled with the Spirit of God suggests a form of being complete, being com sort of whole as followers of Jesus. It should excite us as Christians that with our being baptized, the Holy Spirit at the very moment of our salvation, and then we, we begin to grow in conviction of sin in our lives with the, the help of the Spirit, we actually begin to submit ourselves to a greater filling of the Spirit. We say, we want more. I want to submit more of my life to the Holy Spirit. Uh, this basically means that the Spirit of God takes over more and more of your life and my life. We, we begin to think directed by God the Spirit in accordance with the Word of God. How we speak, we, we, we think and speak spiritually. Our treatment of others is gracious and godly and spiritual. Our, our love for the Word of God is passionate because we, we, we believe the Spirit opens this book and teaches us and leads us. Our desire to, to live for God's glory is directed by God the Spirit. We want to live that way. <clears throat> Not this could be endless. But basically it means this, that we as Christians live God's way, and we don't live our own way. How many Christians today attempt to live their own way and somehow ask God to bless? It doesn't work. We begin to live God's way. We do everything to make much of God, and we become much less concerned about ourselves and what people think of us and how life is and so on. Now, I mentioned there were, there were three facets or three areas in which the Spirit ministers to the believer are being baptized with the Spirit, well, we got that now, are being filled with the Spirit and maturing us in that way. And finally, are being sealed by God the Spirit. And this is the, the real statement of where we're going today. So let's read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul writes, In him, uh, God, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. You've heard this amazing gospel, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So this sealing of the Spirit is so important on the believer's life. What does it mean then for you to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? Well, it's really rare and unusual to um, see a seal in very much today. But in Paul's time, a seal would have been somewhat common, but, but holding a lot of importance. Now, I attempt to visualize um, the postman. Even this is a little bit outdated because we don't get a lot of posts anymore. We get emails and stuff. But attempt to visualize the postman delivering to you a letter which is sealed with the official stamp of Buckingham Palace pressed in wax on the front of the envelope. That's what Paul's talking about, that sort of thing. You know immediately it's important. If you were to visit a cattle station here in, a, in the outback of Australia, you would discover that the, the livestock are branded with a, a mark which signifies who they're owned by. And um, th this protects the, the animal from thieves. And uh, should, they, or should they wander off and get lost, they can be returned safely to their, their owner because the seal says that's where they belong. They belong to that cattle station and not the other one. <clears throat> if you visit the library today, you, you will find books in the library are marked with a, a seal on the inside of the front cover. And that seal indicates the, 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 which library the book belongs to and therefore which library the book should be returned to. So Paul uses this image of a seal to help the believer appreciate the eternal security that we are assured of in our belonging to Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have in him. So picture yourself as, 
as having this seal, this brand, this stamp waxed or burned into your very being. It serves as a, a recognition of you're being owned by someone, namely God himself, who owns you. In the context of salvation, the seal is an indicator of God's ownership over the, the believer. So we've been purchased from the, the, the slave market of sin by God graciously paying the price with the blood of his very own son, Jesus, and having purchased us. So when we purchase something, we own it. So God purchases us in this way. He then saves the believer as belonging to him. He says, this person belongs to me. And the same makes certain that no one and nothing can ever take us from him. So if we wander some, if we wander away, we can be returned to a mass. We belong to God. People see that. In modern terminology, it might help our appreciation of, uh, of this great gift if we equate our being saved by the Spirit of God as being like God's engagement ring, if you want. Uh, when a, a couple are engaged, the lady wears an engagement ring and it indicates, hey, I'm not free, I belong somewhere. <clears throat> uh, there's a wedding yet to come. Whenever we, the church, the bride of Jesus, will be married to our, our wonderful, amazing Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, for all of eternity, we should be looking forward to that. That's such an amazing time that we have in the future. And having been sealed by the Spirit of God, we now live in a, a fully committed manner to our, our future bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we belong to him. We're no longer attracted and swayed by other would-be lovers who go by the name of sin and deceit. Instead, our eyes are, are fixed on the one whom we love and who loves us with the purest love possible. And today we like uh, today we we live each breath with the anticipation of our upcoming wedding to our, our groom to whom the father will declare, now's the time to go and get your bride, son. Go and get her. She's ready. Um, and the, the trumpet will sound and our groom will take our hand and, and together we will begin that journey and that walk into our future. See, whenever people meet us in this interim time, they, they know by our sale, they should know by that statement of life, that obvious engagement ring, if you want, that we're waiting on our groom. We're not up for grabs. We belong to Jesus. <clears throat> the, the ancient um, uh, Bible teacher, F.E. Marsh, he explained it like this. Let me, let me read his, his thoughts here. I think they're helpful. <clears throat> he says that the seal leaves an impression upon the wax which corresponds to it. The outward evidence of the sealing with the Spirit is the resemblance between him, as Jesus, and those sealed. We have no right to say that we have the Spirit of life if we do not, if we, um, do not live by the Spirit, if you want. The Spirit of truth is seen in the truth of the Spirit. The Spirit of love is manifest in the love of the Spirit. The Spirit of grace is evidenced by the grace of the Spirit. The Spirit of humility is made known by the humility of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is revealed in, is in the holiness of the Spirit. The translation into the kingdom of God's dear Son uh, is demonstrated by the transfiguration into his character where the Spirit dwells. His love is seen, says Marsh. So life from the Spirit is followed by the walk in the Spirit. All of those blessings, all of those attributes we want, the Spirit brings them out, and we say, this is how we live. We didn't used to live like this, but now we do because we're sealed by the Spirit of the living God. So the bottom line for every truly redeemed soul is really quite simple. If you belong to Jesus in salvation, then the seal of God, the Spirit, is on your life. So, so live for Jesus 
your bridegroom, as you wait on your Lord and Savior, King Jesus, coming to get you, his bride, when his father, uh, whom his father has sealed and will keep eternally for his son. So we're kept safe until we're given over to a wonderful bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing the Spirit does in our lives. So I hope that encourages you. I hope it challenges, challenges you and stimulates you to keep pressing on for him and uh, walking with him, serving him and following him. Trust that you have a, a great week as you live in that way. May the Lord bless you and may you know, uh, obviously, the seal of his Spirit very clearly and distinctly on your life. Thanks for listening. <laughs>